In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, we're up to page 171. So, what, what we got up to, the priest has finished the sermon. He's prayed the three great litanies, either out loud or inaudibly, which is most of the time he, he does it inaudibly. And then we're at the bottom of page 171. And the deacon holds the cross and says, in Sophia, or in English, In the wisdom of God, let us attend. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, truly dash. Yeah. What does let us attend mean? Just let us be present. Okay, so... It, that's what I used to think as well. Let us be present. If it is let, what do you mean by present? Sorry. That's in, be in the moment. There. Yeah, be in the moment. Because sometimes when I remember when I was a kid and I first heard let us attend, it's like, but I'm already attending. Why do you tell me to attend? But yeah, you're like, right, be present in the moment. Or in other words, let us be attentive. Yeah. So whenever the deacon says let us be attentive, you know something big's about to happen, right? I think this is the f- the first time in the divine liturgy it says let us attend. Yeah. First time, yeah? What happens? Turn the page. What do we say next? We say the Creed of Faith. We say the Nicene Creed. In the early church, at this point, the deacon will, will give an instruction for the people that are not baptized to leave, and the doors would be shut, and then only those who would be baptized would remain, and they would say the Creed because they're baptized and they believe in what we say in the Creed. Yeah? And then after that, after during this, the priest washes his hands a second time. Okay, because between the first time he washed his hands and the second time he washed his hands, he's handled the censer, he's handled the incense, so he cleans his hands for practical reason, and he uses the same three verses that he used earlier on, and you could find these on page 174. Okay? Then the priest enters, so he's in the sanctuary. He turns around to his fellow priests, if they're present, and he says, I have sinned, absolve me. And they reply, I have sinned, absolve me. And then he returns to the people and gives them a tanya and says, I have sinned, forgive me. And the people reply, I have sinned, absolve me. So what's happening is he's asking forgiveness from those that are in the church. Now it's really, really important that really connects with the prayer that's said. Yeah. Then we start the prayer of reconciliation. We're going to go through the prayer of reconciliation of St. Basil today. Okay? So, the prayer of reconciliation, as the title suggests, discusses reconciliation between who? Between us and God through Jesus Christ and between each other. Okay? That's three. The priest gives the general call to prayer. Ishlil, let us pray. The deacon then tells you what to do. He says, stand up for prayer. And then the priest crosses you, peace be with you all, and you reply and with your spirit. And then the priest lifts his hands and says, O God, the great, the eternal, who formed man in incorruption, and death which entered into the world, through the envy of the devil you have destroyed. How? By the life-giving manifestation of your only begotten Son, our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Quick summary of what happened at the fall. Okay? So remember how we said at the beginning that if you never attended Sunday school, but you really paid attention to what happens in the liturgy, you'll get most of what we need to believe. Look at that. How did God create us? He created us in incorruption. What happened when we sinned? Death entered into the world. Well, what was, this, what was the solution? For death to be destroyed. By who? Jesus Christ. That's just two paragraphs. Yeah? You, have filled the heavenly, you have filled the earth with a heavenly peace. 
by which the host of angels glorify you, saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men. Okay? And then the deacon says, Pray for perfect peace, love, and the holy apostolic greetings. Yeah? I'm going to read for you a quote that I've included in your handout from last week because we didn't get up to this part last week. Yeah? The deacon asks us to pray that we may obtain this peace from the heavens. In Philippians 4.6, it says that God's perfect peace surpasses all understanding. So when we say for perfect peace, we're not talking about earthly peace. We're talking about the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Our heavenly peace only comes from Christ. You know, in his farewell discourse, in chapter in John 14, Christ says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And very clearly he says, Not as the world gives do I give to you. So God's peace is a different type of peace. Yeah, The peace that God gives us is not from this world. It's a heavenly peace that you can't take away. So that's what the deacon's praying for. And then we reply, Lord have mercy. So the first part, what we've read so far, speaks about how humans... And God were reconciled. Okay? That's the first part. Is that very easy to see? Humans and God reconciled. What about the second part? According to your goodwill, O God, fill our hearts with your peace. Cleanse us from all blemish or guile or hypocrisy or craftiness and the remembrance of vice bearing death. And make us worthy our master to greet one another with a holy kiss that without casting us into condemnation we may partake of your immortal and heavenly gift in Christ Jesus our Lord and then inaudibly he glorifies the Holy Trinity through whom the glory the honor dominion and worship are due unto you with him and the Holy Spirit the giver of life who is of one essence with you now all times unto the ages of ages Amen okay so now Christ is talking, or sorry, the priest is talking about things inside us that might cause division between us. Like what? I've got some definitions for you. For example, he uses the word guile. What's guile? To be sly or cunningly intelligent. Um, to be crafty, uh, deceitful. Hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have higher standards than what I actually, um, what I actually practice. Yeah? And then after he says, please remove all these things from us, he says, make us worthy of our master to greet one another with a holy kiss. So again, this is one of the three times, three times I think, where the priest says, make us worthy. What does this show? That none of us are worthy and none of us ever will be worthy, but it is God who makes us worthy. Okay, that's very clear here. That without casting us into condemnation, we may partake of your immortal and heavenly gifts. What's the immortal and heavenly gift? Communion, yeah, immortal and heavenly gift in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is he saying that without casting us into condemnation? Can anyone give me a verse in the Gospels that uh, really explains why we have this prayer? Yeah, why do we have this prayer? Yep. Pulling out the reference. Very good. 
I want a very good. Now let's get a bit warmer. An explicit verse that really connects to this, like very clear, like exactly speaking about, and even has the word gift or offering in it. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. All right. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's why we have this prayer. That's why the priest asks for absolution from his fellow priests and forgiveness from the people. This tells us something very important. One of the conditions for approaching the Eucharist is that I don't have a grudge against someone. A heavy grudge, right? But always a little disclaimer. I shouldn't hold myself off from communion just based on my own assumption, but sometimes I could be too harsh and forget that communion is medicine. So the best thing to do is when, it, when in doubt, speak to your confession father. I will not have a grudge against someone. Should I be approaching communion? And he'll give you the guidance there. Yeah? So the verse again, therefore, this is Christ speaking in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's why if the priest turns around and says, I have sinned, forgive me. And someone from the congregation says, no, I don't forgive you. He can't continue. He has to try to figure it out with that person. Yeah. But within reason. That person could be just be, be being silly. He could be being unreasonable. He'd be like, I'm going to continue. Right? And it's happened before. I heard one story when the person was really rude and he, like, he said something really bad and the priest continued because that person was, was not being reasonable in any, in any capacity. Yeah? So it's really important that one of the conditions that we ap ap approach communion with is that we're in good standing with people. Yeah? And it sort of makes sense because if communion is the sacrament of love, and I have a grudge against someone, or there's something between us, then I'm not really practicing that sacrament properly. Yeah? So that's why he says, make us worthy to greet one another with a holy kiss, that without casting us into condemnation, we may partake of your immortal and heavenly gift in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. Now, I'm going to read for you, this was in your handout last week, from St. Cyril of Jerusalem, in the middle of the 4th century. Yeah? So anyone who says, where did we get this from? Well, we have witnesses from pre-4th century saying that we did this. This is in Jerusalem. This is what he says. Remember 4th century. He says, Next the deacon cries out, let us kiss one another. So, you know, next the deacon's going to say, greet one another with a holy kiss. You must not suppose that this kiss is the kiss ordinarily exchanged in the streets by ordinary friends. This kiss is different, for it affects a commingling of souls and pledges complete forgiveness. The kiss then is a sign of a true union of hearts and of the banishing of any grudge. On account of this, Christ said, if when you are offering your gift upon the altar and there you remember that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift on the altar, go first be reconciled with your brother and then come back and offer your gift. This is the fourth century. Yeah? Justin Mara in the year 150 AD Right? Look what he said. At the conclusion of the prayers, we greet one another with a holy kiss. What year was that? 150 AD. So what you're doing here is something that's existed in the church for a very, very long time. And I've given you quotes 
last week that really talk about the importance of that. But it makes sense. Like we said, this is the sacrament of love. Now, what we're called to do, as we said in one, is that the liturgy just orients the compass for how we should live our lives. Yeah? Which means that when I come to church and I hear the words greet one another with a holy kiss, I should remember that I shouldn't only greet the person next to me with a holy kiss, but who else? Sorry? Yeah, and everyone outside. I'm supposed to take that kiss and extend it throughout, yeah? Even if we use the, the analogy of, or the, like the table analogy. You've got one Eucharistic table here, you've got another table at home. Like the image of table means that we're sitting together, we're eating here in the church, we sit together or we stand around the table of the Lord. We're all equal, we partake of the same dish, regardless of who we are, yeah? regardless of what we've done. A husband and wife. What's the first thing that they do as husband and wife originally? Have communion. Because it used to be matins, wedding ceremony, communion. So what's the church trying to say? Husband and wife, your compass as a marriage is where? Here. So what did you do, husband and wife, when you got married? You greeted one another with a holy kiss. You had communion. In other words, I come to church as a husband. I should remind myself to also greet my wife with a holy kiss. Okay? But what that means is that we extend the kiss of peace. We shouldn't have a grudge. Yeah? And the deacon gives us an instruction for that on page 178. He says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Lord have mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. Yes, Lord, who are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hear us and have mercy on us. Then he says something interesting. Offer, offer, offer in order. Stand with trembling, look towards the east, let us attend. What's, what's this offer business, yeah? Well, what's, what's the priest doing during that time? He's lifting up a big cloth. This cloth is called the prosphorin, which comes from a Greek word, prosphora, which means offering. So the cloth you could call offering. Yeah? Why would he be saying offer, 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 and lifting up a cloth called offering? Remember how we said the order of the liturgy went through different changes? At one stage, at this point, the bread and the wine wasn't on the altar. At this point. And the deacon and the priest will lift up the cloth and, the, and the, some say that you, the deacon would go around the church and you would put your offering into the prosperin, the offering cloth. That's why the deacon is saying, offer, offer in order. And it makes sense. Christ says, if you have a gift and you have a grudge, don't offer. We've reconciled, we've greeted one another with a holy kiss, now offer. Offer what? Bread, wine, first fruits, oil, incense, reading books, money, water, whatever. Yeah? And then he says, stand with trembling. That's a nice one. If we walk into church on Sunday, if an outsider walk, can they say that we're standing with trembling? Can I put Reed on the spot? Yeah? Let's see if this goes my way. Um, the when you first walked into a Coptic liturgy, would you say that we stood with trembling? Would you say that our manner was more relaxed or more reverent? In between. Vez and Barbara, what would you say? More relaxed or more, rever more reverent? Yep. As a whole, compared to other services you've been to. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say relaxed because... I think especially the deacons were way too relaxed, yeah? <laughs> especially compared to a lot of other 
Christian churches. But that's good. That's a positive. Yeah. But if you look at the next response, this is he has an option. He could either say the small one or the long response. The long response uses more descriptive words to tell us how we should stand. Yeah. Great one another with a holy kiss. Of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, hear us and have mercy upon us. Let us stand well, let us stand reverently, let us stand earnestly, let us stand in peace, let us stand in the fear of God, trembling and stunned. Yeah, look at those words that he's using. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and someone might say, Why? God doesn't really care how I stand, it's all about the heart. It's like the whole shorts argument. Like whenever we tell the guys, please don't wear shorts to church. Why? God doesn't care what I wear. Yeah. Remember that first quote we did for Alexander Schmemann at the beginning? He said, beauty, for example, is not functional. Doesn't, it's not functional, but it's nice. Like we don't have to have like the gold here. It could just be plain wool. Yeah. We don't have to have the nice etching here. It could just be plain. The priest doesn't have to wear nice vestments. It could just be plain. You don't have to have nice things. But he goes, when someone comes over to your house, out of joy, what do you do? Put out a nice tablecloth, you might light some candles, put some nice, a center candle as well. This expresses the joy and the reverence that we have towards God. Yeah? And this standing is really, really important. Like we said, Amber Epiphanius, when he was here a few mo- uh, months ago, he said that one of the most important things we could do is have outward reverence, and outward reverence brings inward reverence. How? The way that we walk into church, what we do as soon as we walk in, as soon as we walk in, ideally, we should touch the ground, if possible, and kiss the ground, like this. Do the sign of the cross, not these ones, yeah, these ones, nice and slow, big crosses, slowly, say the Lord's Prayer, slowly. There are even psalms to be said on the way to church, if you're interested, they're on Coptic Reader. You stand in your spot, you put your phone in flight mode, or off, and just still, you know. And then you could read the rest of the prayer, but that's the one that I wanted to, to focus on. Yeah. All right. Now we could go to number five. Then we start the anaphora. So this is, you could say, one of the main parts of the liturgy. Yeah. Everyone got handout five? Yeah, I just gave it out, yeah. Yeah. No, I actually wanted I actually wanted I wanted you to say relaxed. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised, to be honest. Sorry? We passed again. We passed again, yeah. I, I, think, some, I think sometimes we're... Not great. I, I think the way that we stand in church, like the, especially with the deacons, sometimes they talk, the movement across the sanctuary over, yeah, like the way the tunics, for example, sometimes are inappropriate and they take it as a sign of humility. You know, like they're not ironed or they're short or there's a button missing or they're not going to wear the stole today because it's a camp. 
like I'm not going to wear my stole like because I'm being humble like that that stuff really you won't find in any other church yeah but that's sort of one of my OCD points yeah okay then we get to the anaphora okay page 184 these next phrases you'll find in many churches in the Catholic church in the Greek church and I think in some Anglican churches as well in the, Eastern, in the Greek church I mean the Eastern Orthodox church yeah beautiful part. The priest says, the Lord be with you all. And you reply, he crosses the people, and you reply, and with your spirit. He says, lift up your hearts. We reply, they are with the Lord. He then says, let us give thanks to the Lord. You reply, it is meat and right. Meat and right is an, like meat means um, it's befitting or it's worthy. It's a worthy thing to do. In other words, meat and right means, yes, Abuna, give thanks. We're saying that's a really good thing to do. Okay? Alright. So, when the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord, if you read the Greek, it says, Ef men tokereyo. Ef men sounds like what word? Like ef thank you. And it's in English, it sounds like Eucharist. Eucharist means thanksgiving. Yeah? The word Eucharist could mean thanksgiving and it also implies the sacrament and the service as well. Yeah? I want to read from St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Okay? Again, this is in the 4th century. This is what he's instructing the people that just got baptized about the liturgy. So they've attended their first liturgy. He hasn't told them anything about it until they attend. Right? Because it's all about experience liturgy and then let's talk about it. Look what he says. This has some very practical points for us. Then the priest cries, lift up your hearts, for truly it is, it is necessary at that most awesome hour to have one's heart on high towards God and not below occupied with earth and the things of earth. Beautiful. What he's trying to say is at this point of the liturgy, make sure your mind is in heaven, not on earth. Yeah. But what happens if I have problems? What happens if I walked in and I have something that I'm really worried about? Yeah. If I have an exam, if I have a trouble at work, a friend's ill, what am I going to do? I can't help but think about it. Yeah? Remember, in the, in the beginning of the liturgy, we have the offertory. So what we could do is we could offer these things to God in prayer. A practical way to do that is to write it down on a piece of paper, hand it over to the deacons, they put it on the altar, and if you like, Abuna could read it at the offertory when he's praying for people. Yeah. Now, the situation might not change when I walk out, but I've changed when I walk out. So which means I might be able to handle that situation in a more peaceful, in a more joyful way. But what he's telling us to do is don't be occupied with things on earth. In effect, then, the priest commands everyone at that very hour to banish worldly thoughts and workaday cares and to have their hearts in heaven towards God who loves mankind. Yeah? Then, assenting to this by your confession, you answer, We have lifted them up to the Lord. Let no one present be so disposed that while his lips say, we have lifted them up to the Lord. In his mind, his attention is engaged with worldly thoughts. In other words, he's saying, don't lie. Yeah, don't say it if you don't mean it. You said they're with the Lord, they better be with the Lord, otherwise don't say it. Yeah? I think Amber Daniel and Antonio, when he was a Buna Daniel, made a song that says, God wants to communicate th not through, that God doesn't want to communicate with you through your phone. And it says, lift up your hearts in brackets, I think. Yeah? But look what it says, the part that I've underlined. At all times, we should be mindful of God. So it's trying to say, the priest, the liturgy, trying to reorient our compass. is trying to say, well, our mind should always be with God. 
but it's a bit tough as humans. But look what he says. At all times we should be mindful of God, but at least, if this is not possible due to human frailty, we must strive for it at that hour. That's why it's very nice that our liturgy at least goes for two hours. If it was shorter, like on a Sunday, like the, the day of the Lord, the day when the whole church gets together, you won't have time to actually do that. But by the time you get into, like you get warmed up and you're into the liturgy, it's already one and a half hours in. Yeah? If you're finished already, it's a bit hard. Then the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. Indeed, we ought to give thanks to the Lord for calling us when we were unworthy, to so great a grace, for reconciling us when we were enemies, and for granting us the power of adoption. Then you say it is fitting and right. In giving thanks we do indeed fitting and right act. But he did not a right act, but one which went beyond justice, by his kindness counted worthy of such marvelous blessings. So what's happening is the priest is saying, let us give thanks to the Lord. In other words, let us Eucharist. And what do you reply? Yes, go ahead. You with me there? Yeah? It is made and right. So what does the priest do? After that? He thanks. What does he thank God for? Quick panoramic overview of the liturgy, right? So, so far, it's all been building up to this. We've offered the gifts. We've heard the sermon. We've heard the word of God through our ears. We've received God, the word of God through our ears before we receive him in our mouths. Okay? We've greeted one another with a holy kiss. It's all building up to this point. The priest has said, lift up your hearts. Okay, we're there. Let us give thanks. And you're like, go for it, Abuna. And what does he do? Big panoramic shot of the liturgy, and then we'll come back. He goes, O oh, you being the master Lord of God of truth, he created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In them. What's he doing? Thanking God for creation. Right? Who formed us, created us, and placed us in the paradise of joy. Thanking God for creating us. And when we disobeyed your commandment by the deceit of the serpent, we fell from eternal life. You have not abandoned us, but have sent us your holy prophets. Thanking God for the prophets. Was incarnate, became man, rose from the dead. Thanking God for the incarnation, for his crucifixion and resurrection. He took bread in his hands. He broke. He tasted. Every time we eat this bread, we drink of this cup. Thanking God for the Eucharist. And then, remember, Lord, the peace of the one holy Catholic Church. Thanking God for the Church. Remember our High Priest, Pope Tuadros, and our Bishop, Ava Suriel, the clergy. Those who rightly define the word of truth. Um, have mercy uh, and all the uh, servants on who have, uh, who, and all who are in virginity. Remember, our Lord, to have mercy upon us all. The safety of the world, the air of the heaven, the fruits of the earth. Thanking God for all of those things. Then the saints and then the people that died and we say their names. Thank you, God, for reposing them and for their lives. And then um, lead us throughout the way into your kingdom. Thank you, God, for leading us. And then right at the end of that, he says what? Again, let us give thanks to God for he has made us worthy to stand in this holy place. So he starts with let us give thanks to the Lord and he ends with again, let us give thanks. So what's he been doing the whole time? Thanking God. Yeah, that's what the Eucharist is is one massive act of thanksgiving. Now, how does it turn from routine to thanksgiving internally? Yeah, Let's think about it like this. Just use an analogy. It's not perfect, but it might work. Imagine you're a kid and you need a kidney. Okay? And an adult goes, take mine. Right? And you lived because of that. As a kid, your parents are going to say, say thank you to uncle so-and-so for giving you the kidney. Thank you. And then you get a bit older. You're like, wow, that was a big deal. Thank you. And then you finally become old enough that you realize, wow, this is huge. So you thank that person even more. That's the same thing with our relationship with God. The more we realize what God has done for us through the incarnation, 
the more we offer thanksgiving, the more we grow in the liturgy. That's why someone who's growing in their life in Christ, you'll find will grow in their participation of the liturgy. Yeah, it's a way of being grateful. And the more, the, the, the more I grow in uh, the knowledge of God, as in like not being aware and um, being... Um, uh, what's that word? Yeah, yeah, the more you understand, the more you realize, the more our eyes are opened that we're able to give thanks. Like in the Feast of Transfiguration, what did the disciples do after they heard, this is my beloved son, hear him? They fell on their faces. Why? Because they saw who God is. They weren't told to fall on their faces, they just did it. Yeah. So we fall on our faces in thanksgiving after we see who God is. Now this is not something that you could be convinced of in a youth meeting or a Sunday school class or in a sermon, right? It's something that you have to taste. Yeah? It's like that kid, you tell him, thank him, yeah, thank you, uncle. But when you're older and you actually realize, like, oh, it's a big deal. Yeah, once you realize, once we're aware. And that's why what we do between Sunday and Sunday is very important. If we're growing in our prayer life, we're growing in our, in our scripture reading, what we do between Sunday and Sunday should really pump us for the next Sunday. So how do I know if what I'm doing between Sunday and Sunday is right? Is it making me look forward to Sunday even more? Am I going more prepared? Am I engaging with the liturgy in a deeper way? Am I engaging in a more joyful way? Am I leaving more joyful? Yeah? Because, like, sometimes we actually forget. Like, why does everyone go to Jerusalem? That's where Christ was. That's where he walked. But he was also here, right? And this altar here. So is this altar any less than Jerusalem? Like, do we actually believe? Like, individual has to answer this question. Do we actually believe that every Sunday when I'm standing in church and I partake of the Eucharist, that this is the person of Jesus Christ himself, not a symbolic thing? Like, is, do I actually believe that? And this is why we should always pray that God open our eyes to see what's happening. Yeah? Oh, Lord, open my eyes to see what's happening. Like, do we actually believe? Like, if I said to you, you know that story of St. Bishoy, when Christ appeared and told him, go to this mountain and take your disciples and you'll see me. And the disciples walked past the old man and they're like, oh, we've got to run, we're going to see Christ. And St. Bishoy picks him up. It's like, come with me and it turns out to be Christ. Well, it's exactly the same thing. Every day in Melbourne, there's at least one place you could go to where you could have communion. Yeah? But do we treat it like that? How do I know if I am treating it the right way? How I prepare, the disposition that I rock up in, that I attend the liturgy in, the way that I participate in the liturgy, the way that I pray, and how I walk out. And everyone could just judge themselves for that internally. Yeah? I think, for example, when it comes to the deacons, it has nothing to do with humility, how the vestments are worn. Like, the vestments are there to show the rank so that you could do the assigned task. If you're a reader, you have it in a special way and only that person should read. A subdeacon wears it in a special way, so they're identifiable, yeah? In terms of us approaching liturgy, my personal thing is I think on Sundays or every or any time we attend the Eucharist, we, could, we should attend in respect, yeah? But the church has a right to put a dress code. 
for example, and like even if that dress code is not formal, for example, if the general understanding of the church is that we don't wear shorts, then we just don't wear shorts, for example. And if people get upset about that, then that's a bit weird because at some restaurants there's a dress code and no one ever complains. Yeah? When you go on, if you go on any holiday in, in Europe, even if you enter a synagogue, even when you go, is there, is there a dress code of the 40? Oh, in the MCC, you have to wear a collar. Well, and no one ever, no one argues. Yeah, yeah. Like the worst argument I heard was, it's really hot, and sometimes I just can't stand in church in shorts. I'm like, hold on. When it's a wedding, you're in a suit. No complaints. You don't walk up to a wedding in shorts and go, oh, it's hot. Yeah. Humility is more internal than external. Yeah, humility is about me having complete reliance on God. It's more internal. Alright. Let's keep reading. So, St. Cyril... Wow, we're really behind the time. St. Cyril... So, I'm going to check in with you in 15 minutes. You're going to tell me should we keep going or not. If half of the people say, okay... Actually, let's do it another way. In 15 minutes... If you, if you, feel, if you feel like that's it, feel free to... Like, go to the youth house for the fellowship. Because we're supposed to finish at 9. But I think we're going to end up going over because there's a lot to cover if we need to... F- this is the third last one. This one, next one, and one after, and that's it. Last paragraph. After that, we call to mind heavens, earth, sea, sun, moon, stars, rational, irrational creation, visible, invisible, archangels, um, um, angels, archangels, dominions. Does that sound familiar? This is the fourth century. Yeah? Let's turn the page. The second quote by Father Tadus Malati. Then he cries, let us lift up your hearts. That is, let us be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. The people give their consent and say that their hearts are lifted up to heaven, where their treasure, treasure is, that is Jesus Christ. We have followed him in his ascension because he accepted us at his table in his kingdom. We have entered the world to come and are now standing beyond time and space. So what he's trying to say is, at that moment, because our hearts are with the Lord, we are beyond time. You know, how? My clock is still ticking. We believe that whenever we partake of the Eucharist, whenever we're at the liturgy, we're actually at the Last Supper. Right? We're actually at the Last Supper. We're beyond time. We're in heaven. It is because all this has happened to us that something will happen to the bread and wine. Now that our hearts are in heaven in Christ, nothing remains but to give thanks to God. And the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the people reply, it is worthy and right. And you could read you could read the next few quotes, yeah? And it's always important to remember that 100 people go to the liturgy, say 50 walk out, different to the other 50. Same liturgy, different people. So it's not about the liturgy. It's about, like I mean, what I mean by that, it's about how much I participate or how much I'm in synergy with God in the liturgy, how much, how humble I am, I am during the liturgy, how attentive I am. Uh, if I'm praying or if I'm just attending, if I'm going through the motions, yeah? I want to read the quote by Father Lev Gillet at the bottom there, yeah? We now enter into the central prayer of the liturgy, into the great act of gratitude and offering of which the consecration of bread and wine constitutes the essential element. This properly termed the Eucharist, for Eucharist means thanksgiving. Skip that paragraph in the third one. For what do we express our gratitude to God in the great prayer of thanksgiving? We thank Him for all things. We remember before Him everything He has done on our behalf. 
He has raised us up after the fall. He bears us tirelessly into his coming kingdom. We give thanks for all the good things which we know and which we know not, and for the abundant goodness which he pours out upon us each day in an infinite variety of ways. Yeah? And then you could read, if you like, at home, next uh, part. And then I've included here something on creation, which I won't go through because we actually went through it in January, the first way that we had. But what it, it just goes on to explain the Christian understanding of how God created everything out of nothing. But I've put it there because we're talking a little bit about creation here. So you could read those at home. Yeah? Let's continue and read the first part of the Anaphora. He says, Meat and right, meat and right, truly indeed it is meat and right. What's he talking about? Thanksgiving. O you, talking to the Father, the being, Master, Lord God of truth, being before the ages and reigning forever, who dwells in the highest and looks upon the lowly, who has created the heaven, the earth, the sea, all that is therein, the Father of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, by whom you have created all things visible and visible, who is seated upon the throne of his glory, and who is worshipped by all the holy powers, before whom stand angels, the archangels, the principalities, the authorities, the thrones, the dominions, and the powers. And of course, there's the two deacon responses there. You are he around whom stand the cherubim full of eyes and the seraphim with six wings, praising continuously without ceasing, saying. Okay, we've all heard that part. And what's he doing is thanking God for creation of the heavens. Okay, then this is very interesting. The priest says, saying, and the deacon interrupts him and says, let us attend. Says the, the priest saying, uh, um, without ceasing, saying, and he's like, say it but the deacon says let us attend in other words wake up something important is happening yeah but then something happens we say the cherubim worship you but he said saying not describing saying so some people say that that first paragraph there was a bit of a later edition and originally the priest would say saying and then the people would say holy 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 lord of hosts heaven and earth are full of your glory yeah this praise is the praise in heaven it's in the book of Isaiah, which I'll hand out, hand out about now. And what happens at this point? Us on earth join the heavenly in saying the same praise together. So this is where heaven and earth come together. Because we, he says saying and we say holy, holy. With who? With the angels, with the heavenlies. So we're all one church. And this actually, this concept of all being one church has something to do with why we pray for the dead. Yeah? We're all one church. Um, if you could please kindly hand a handout. I've titled this one Oh, no, that's all. Uh, there should be 20. Oh, there should be... Might have to share. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll print some more. I thought I printed enough. Sorry. Okay. So, again, a quote by St. Cyril of Jerusalem to show that this part of the liturgy is pretty old. And then the reading from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, the, the two covering, and the, the, like describing how the seraphim cover, yeah, that's mentioned in the Gregorian, which m- might be worth going through today at the end if we have time. But you see that praise, holy, 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 taken from the book of Isaiah, we sing it with the heavenly. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. An image of communion. That's actually a verse that some people say when they receive the blood. Behold, this has touched your lips. Or you say in personal, Behold, this has touched my lips. My iniquity is taken away. Some people say that when they receive the blood. Yeah. Then we get to page 188. And the priest says three sections in the anaphora before the institution. Again, this is all explaining the story of salvation. So if we actually really pay attention to this, we're getting the faith taught to us through our worship. Holy, holy, holy indeed, O Lord our God, who formed us, created us, and placed us in the paradise of joy. When we disobeyed your commandment by the deceit of the serpent, we fell from eternal life and were exiled from the paradise of joy. I'm going to read all three parts like after each other so you see how it flows nicely. You have not abandoned us again, but have always visited us through your holy prophets. And in the last days you manifested yourself to us, who was sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. How did he manifest himself? Through your only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who? So Jesus Christ. Of the Holy Spirit and of the Holy Virgin Mary was incarnate and became man and taught us the ways of salvation. He granted us the birth from on high through water and spirit. He... Christ made us unto himself an assembled people and sanctified us by your Holy Spirit. He loved his own who were in the world and as a ransom on our behalf gave himself up unto death which reigned over us whereby we were bound and sold on account of our sin. He descended into Hades through the cross and he rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into the heavens and sat at your right hand, O Father. He has appointed a day for recompense on which he will appear to judge the world in righteousness and give each one according to his deeds. Explained essentially the story of salvation there very quickly and we reply amen at one section amen i believe in another section and then according to your mercy O lord and not according to our sins that's the that's all we're going to get up to in the liturgy today let's explain those three yeah all makes sense so far i'm not talking really really fast but it's okay all right So I want to go to page one, two, three. And you could read all those um, in your own time. Time. I want to talk about, since he talks about he formed us, created us and placed us in the paradise of joy. I want to talk about us being created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Us being created in the image and likeness of God. Yeah? If you read in italics there. Image denotes the human person's potential for life in God, 
and likeness to his or her destiny and realization of that potential. So image is something that all humans have in common, Christian and non-Christian. Likeness is what we could reach if we use our image in the right way. Yeah? What does image mean? What does it mean to be created in the image? Bishop Callista Swear lists a few things in bold that I want to read and as markers of the image. Okay, there's different markers that different fathers talk about. Bishop Callistus has just summarized some of them. Yeah, the first one, which is the longest one that I've summarized, is relationship. To be, to be in the image of God means to be capable of relationship. Let's read together. It's a bit long, but it's worth reading. To be created in the image means that we are created for fellowship and communion with God. And if we repudiate that fellowship and communion, we are denying our own true self. Such is the vertical dimension of our personhood. Our creation in the image signifies, listen to this, that to be human is to be God-related. I cannot understand myself apart from God. So there's no such thing as an identity in the Christian understanding apart from God. But this vertical, man-God, God-related orientation implies also in a second place a horizontal orientation. To be human is to be in relationship with other humans. So to be a human is to be God-related and related to other humans. For the God in whose image we are made is God the Holy Trinity. And so the divine icon within each of us is a Trinitarian icon. The God who is essential to my personhood, without whom I cannot be genuinely human, is a God of mutual love, not a simple nomad, uh, monad, monad. You pronounce it. Not one person loving himself alone, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another in reciprocal relationships. So there is love between the Holy Trinity. Who did God love before He created us? If His love, there was love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That image is in us, which means part of being created in the image of God means that we exist in relationship. The unity of the Trinity, needless to say, is a unique unity, and human persons can never be one with the same degree of closeness and reciprocal indwelling as prevails among the three divine persons of the Trinity. If divine being is a relational being, then humans should be relational. It is impossible to speak of the being of God without using the word communion. Then the same concept of canonia is equally essential when we speak about humans. And then you could read the rest. Uh, actually, no. I have to highlight something else. Okay. All right. Um, after the italics. I cannot know myself as a person apart from my relationship with you. For I can be genuinely personal only if I love the other after the likeness of the Trinitarian God. And if in turn I am loved by them. Personhood is always personal. There is no such thing as I without a you. The individual is the human being as a competitor. That's what you call an individual. The person is the human being as a co-worker. The whole purpose of our life on earth is that we each develop from an individual, me, 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 into a person, us and you. And it is precisely communion after the likeness of the Trinity that distinguishes the second from the first. This is what makes us different to animals. As Christians, we are here to insist on the vital need for unmediated personal encounter. Not machine to machine, but face to face, person to person, prosopon to prosopon, according to 
model of God the Trinity. That's a very long explanation of relationship. It's a bit heavy, but it's really important. That's what it means to be created in the image. Yeah? That's why the concept of kanonia is very central to the table. That's why we can't call ourselves the church unless my problems are your problems and your problems are my problems. So if we come to church and all pleasant, hi, 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 and we all leave, and I'm just left alone to go through my problems, then we really haven't lived this out properly. That's one thing. The second, or a second meaning of image is growth, which means that we have the ability to grow. Third, self-awareness. We have the ability to be self-aware. Fourth, freedom. Have the ability to be free. This is just a few of them. There's more. But this, all these things animals don't have. Right? And above all, animals aren't rational. They're not thinking creatures like us. We could think and speak. Animals don't have that. Yeah? This is what we call image. This is what all humans have. doesn't matter what faith they are. You're born with that. That's called the image. Yeah? Saint Irenaeus, writing in the 2nd century. The perfect human being has both image and likeness, whereas imperfect only has the image, but not the likeness. What's the likeness? To be like God. Not to be God. You're not going to be eternal. You're not going to be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. But you're going to be like Him. You could share in being peaceful or loving. It's a Alright? St. Basil speaks about that um, a little bit there. And then I have a quote from Origin that you could read. And lastly, a quote from St. Gregory of Nyssa that I want to read together. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We possess one by creation, image. We acquire the other by free will. So it's up to us to work with God towards the likeness. All of us are born with the image, but it's up to us what we do with the image. I could ever use the image to grow in the likeness of God or to grow in the other direction. That's up to me. To the degree that I allow God to work in our lives. In the first structure, it is given us to be born in the image of God. By free will, there is formed in us the being in the likeness of God. Okay? Let us make man in our image. Let him possess by creation what is in the image. But let him also become according to the likeness. God has given the power for this. If he had created you also in the likeness, where would your privilege be? Why have you been crowned? If the Creator had given you everything, how would the kingdom of heaven have opened to you? But it is proper that one part is given you, while the other has been left incomplete. That is so that you might complete it yourself and might be worthy of the reward which comes from God. That's where we get the phrase, the aim of the Christian life is to be Christ-like. Have you heard that? The aim of the Christian life is to be Christ-like. Yeah? That's a quick summary of that, but read the quotes. Oh, okay. Not bad. For time. I've put a picture there. Does anyone want to guess what this is? What, what do you think I'm going to talk about with this picture? Sin. Yes. Why? I'm just picking on words and using it as an opportunity to talk about things. On page 190 we say, According to your mercy, O Lord, and not according to our sins. In Greek, Kata to eleoso kirie ke mi kata tas amarteias imon. Amarteias, Greek word, amarteia, which means when an archer misses the mark. That's what sin is, to miss the mark. Yeah? What's the mark? Christ. 
Christ is loving. If I do anything unloving, I've missed the mark. Christ is purity. If I do anything impure, I've missed the mark. Christ is truth. If I do anything untruthful, I've missed the mark. Christ is holy. If I do anything unholy, I've missed the mark. But of course, especially the people of Israel, they couldn't get that. So what did God have to do? He had to really break it down. Don't murder. Like, who do you have? Like, really? You have to say, explain that? Yes, because these people, when Moses was gone for 40 days, were worshipping a cow. Yeah? So God has to really break down the rules for us. But they're not really rules. Yeah? If I'm in a relationship with someone who's holy, God, then obviously I have to do holy things. We call the, Some people call them rules just to make them easy to explain. That's why whenever anyone says Christianity is full of many rules, it's a very immature way of looking at Christianity. It's a primary school approach to Christianity. I need to aim for the mark. Who's the mark? Christ. Yeah? That's why when people ask, especially mainly younger people, is it a sin to do this? That's a very low bar you're setting for your life. Is it a sin if I do this? Yeah? No, that's the wrong question. The question should be, will this allow me to grow towards likeness or is it going to hold me back? That's a more mature way of looking at it. Yeah? That's how we move, we grow in that. Any questions on that? Okay. We have two options now. Option number one, we stop. Option number two, we have a quick look at the Liturgy of St. Gregory. Raise your hand if you want to look at the Liturgy of St. Gregory. One, two, okay. We'll do it. <laughs> and it was peer pressure. Okay, go to page 265. I'll just look at the anaphora in the Liturgy of St. Gregory. It's beautiful. Yeah? The Liturgy of St. Gregory is addressed to the Son. That's why the priest will say, You. So, you took bread in your hands. You gave thanks. You tasted. In the Liturgy of St. Basil, it's addressed to the Father. He tasted. He broke. He took bread in his hands. But the Liturgy of St. Gregory is addressed to the Son. 265. The priest starts with a slightly longer prayer. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with your spirit, lift up your hands. We have them with the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is made and right. This is actually really nice to read at home, like continually, like, like I mean, as a one continuous passage. Meet and right, meet and right, meet and right. It is fitting indeed and right that we praise you, bless you, serve you, worship you, glorify you, the, only, the one only true God, the lover of mankind. Then the priest attempts to describe God. How can you describe someone who's indescribable? You use words to describe what God is not. Right? Ineffable. Which means you can't speak about Him. Yeah? So He's not effable. He's not visible. So when you can't, you can't describe God like the same way you describe a chair or a human. Because God is not like us. He's other to us. Right? So you use what we call apophatic language. Which is describing God by what he's not yeah so for example invisible he's not finite he is infinite he doesn't have a beginning so we say without beginning everlasting he's beyond time so we say timeless you can't measure him immeasurable you can't comprehend him incomprehensible you can't change him unchangeable okay some of the words that we're using to describe God what we call apophatic language 
Creator of all, Saviour of everyone, who forgives our sins, who saves our life from corruption, who crowns us with mercy and compassion. You, Christ, are He whom the angels praise and the archangels You are He whom the principalities bless and to whom the dominions cry. You are He whose glory the authorities declare. You are He unto whom the throne send up honour. Thousands of thousands stand before you and ten thousand times ten thousands offer you service. You are he whom the invisible bless and the visible worship. They all do your word, O our Master. O you the being Master, Lord God of tr- God, sorry, are you the being Master, Lord, true God of true God, who has manifested to us the light of the Father, who has granted us the true knowledge of the Holy Spirit, so talking to Christ, who has manifested to us this great mystery of life, who has established the rising of the choir of the incorporeal among men, who has given to the earthly the praising of the seraphim, Receive from us also our voices together with the invisible. Count us with the heavenly hosts. Let us also pray with them, having cast away from us all the thoughts of evil imagination, and proclaim that which they send up with unceasing voices and unfailing lips, and praise your greatness. You are he around whom stand the cherubim and the seraphim, six wings to the one, six wings to the other. With two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. And one cries to another, they send up the hymn of victory and salvation which is ours with a voice full of glory. They praise, they sing, they proclaim, they cry out saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your holy glory. Doesn't it sound nicer when you read it? Like to yourself? Nice like that? Yeah? I hope it does. <laughs> so the Thanksgiving prayer here is a little bit different. And then let's keep going. Turn the page. Page 271. Holy, holy, O Lord, and holy are you in everything, and most excellent is the light of your essence. Ineffable is the power of your wisdom, and no manner of speech can measure the depth of your love towards mankind. You, as lover of mankind, talking to Christ, have created me as man. You had no need of my servitude, but rather I had need of your lordship. Because of the multitude of your tender mercies, you have brought me into existence when I was not. You have raised heaven as a roof for me. So the priest is thanking God for all these things, as this is the anaphora. And established the earth for me to walk upon. For my sake, you have bound me. So this is very personal. The priest speaking on behalf of the people using the word my. It's a very personal prayer. For my sake, you have manifested the nature of animals. You have subjected all things under my feet. You have not left me in need of any of the works of your honor. You are he who formed me and laid your hand upon me and inscribed in me the image of your authority. You have placed in me the gift of speech, and opened for me paradise to enjoy, and have given to me the learning of your knowledge. You have manifested to me the tree of life, and made to me the sting of death. Of one plant you have forbidden me to eat, that of which you have said to me, of it only do not eat, but according to my will I did eat. I put your law behind me by my own counsel, and became slothful towards your commandments. I plucked for myself the sentence of death. Very descriptive. Yeah? Keep going. You, O oh my master, have turned for me the punishment into salvation. As a good shepherd, you have sought after that which had gone astray. As a true father, you have travailed or labored with me, I who had fallen. You have bound me with all the remedies that lead to life. God has given us everything that we need for eternal life. You are he who has sent me the prophets for my sake, I the sick. Very personal language. You have given me the law as a help. You are he who ministered salvation to me when I disobeyed your law. As true light, you have shone upon the lost and ignorant. 
O you, the being throughout all time, have come to us on earth. You have come into the womb of the Virgin. You, the infinite being God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself and took the form of a servant and blessed my nature in yourself and fulfilled your law on my behalf. You have shown me the rising up from my fall. You have given release to those who are bound in hades. You have lifted the curse of the law. You have abolished sin in the flesh. You have shown me the power of your authority. You have given sight to the blind. You have raised the dead from the tombs. You have established nature by the word. You have manifested to me the economy of your tender mercy. What does economy mean? Financials? <laughs> plan. It's a, it's, it's a theological word for plan. The plan or the plan for your tender mercy. You have borne the oppression of the wicked. You have given your back to the scourge. Your cheeks you have left open to those who smite. Personal language. Look at this. For my sake, O my master, you have not hidden your face from the shame of spitting. You have come to the slaughter as a sheep, even to the cross. You have manifested the greatness of your care for me. You have slain my sin in your tomb. You have brought my first fruit up to heaven. You have shown me the manifestation of your coming, wherein you shall come to judge the living and the dead, and give each one according to his deeds. Beautiful. Right? Next. I offer you, O my master, symbols of my freedom. I write my works according to your sayings. You are he who has given me this service full of mystery. You have given me the partaking of your flesh in bread and wine. And then the rest of the part, we know that. The rest, yeah? Sorry, that was quick, but you get that whole. So imagine you removed all the spaces and just made it into one big block text. That's a beautiful teaching on what Christ has done for us, yeah? And it's not far-fetched if one day when you want to pray at home, you, you say this is a prayer. Yeah, you could take this and you could... Read it out to God as you're doing your personal prayer. If, if, because I think these words connect with a, a lot of people. That's why a lot of people like it when the Gregorian is prayed. If you have the app, the Coptic Reader app, oh. yep, it's all there. And if you, if you Google Liturgy of St. Gregory PDF, you might, find, you might find a copy of it online. All right. That's a lot. Any other questions? Any questions on that? Okay, so sorry that was a bit quick, but um, we're running a bit behind because last week I took too long. So next week, we've got two more actually. Yeah, two more. Next week, we're going to go through the institution narrative, which is the next part, beautiful part, um, remembering the Last Supper, and then the seven litanies. Talking, and we're going to talk about why we pray for the dead. And then the week after, we're going to talk about fraction. We're going to go through the fraction. And communion. So this week and last week we didn't have any practical parts because the priest is mainly standing and praying at the altar. But next week we're going to look at what the priest does during the institution narrative. Because he holds the bread and he breaks the bread and he lifts the cup. And in the fraction the week later he divides the body in a way that you can't see if you're standing in the congregation. Only those in the sanctuary can see that. We'll go for fellowship um, in the youth house as well. Glory be to God forever. Amen. We'll say the Lord's Prayer. The surprise is coming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.